Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Norse Mythology It's kind of the unspoken mythology, at least in American schools. Growing up, we got a lot of Greek mythology, and just a tiny bit of a suggestion of Egyptian mythology, just as insofar as it pertains to the the fact that there are pyramids and and other structures in, in Egypt that date back a long ways. But we never got anything about Norse mythology. I don't know why. I guess we just didn't really talk about the North that much. But in this episode, and probably the next two or three episodes, I want to talk about Norse mythology. And as with the coverage of both the Egyptian pantheon and the Dunsany pantheon, the Pagana pantheon, I want to use the D&D Player's Handbook as kind of a guide for this discussion, because certainly there's a lot of information or a lot of interesting things in Norse mythology, but I am certainly not a Norse mythology expert by any means, and I'll tell you just exactly how true that is in a moment, Uh, but also because we could just go on and on about Norse mythology. So um, I'm going to use page 299 specifically, which is Appendix B, I think. Yes, Appendix B in the 5th edition Player's Handbook, in which they discuss all of the different pantheons that they they map to the D&D alignment system, a couple of different ones that they do that with. And I'd like to, I'll just run down that list and cover the gods that they, that they provide in the player's handbook. So that's, that's the guide that I will use. But first, let's talk a little bit about the cosmology of, of, the, of the Norse mythological understanding. And, and also a little bit about the, the nature of the gods in, the, in Norse mythology. So first of all, well first of all, I'm no expert in this realm of knowledge whatsoever. As I said, back in my school days, I got zero Norse mythology, and I haven't really investigated it all that much since. I'm vaguely aware of it, as much as anyone is, and I've recently read Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology, which is far from the academic study of Norse mythology that it's rather bold title might suggest, Norse mythology. It's actually just a collection of short stories that happen to be retellings, I guess, of famous Norse myths. And the reason for it at all, honestly, I'm not 100% sure. I do kind of wonder where it came from. And the reason that it's by Neil Gaiman, I kind of wonder about that as well, because it really is. It's It's a very straight, as far as I can tell, retelling of Norse myths. There's no relationship between each chapter. It is they're, they're completely independent of one another. There's no introduction. You are simply dropped into each story as uh, just sort of assuming that you already know who all the gods are. It doesn't really give a whole lot of introduction to any characters. The characters don't necessarily persist through the chapters. I mean, certainly certain gods keep popping up time and time again, but some gods pop up for one story and then are gone the next. There's a little bit it's a bit, a bit of a strange book, to be honest. I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what I'd expected, but I hadn't expected what I got. It's still an interesting read, though. I, I have to say, I really appreciated it because, as I said, 
I never really knew a whole lot about Norse mythology. So having someone else do a little bit of research, or a lot of bit of research, I'm not really sure how hard the book was to write, having Neil Gaiman do all that work and then write it all down in a nice, easily digestible form is actually much appreciated. And if you're curious about some of the stories from Norse mythology, the way that maybe you probably know a bunch of different stories about Greek mythology, th this is not a bad read. This is actually really quite good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for, ha for having re read the book. I just, just saying, it's not, it's not at all academic. It, it doesn't, it doesn't serve any kind of, any kind of knowledge that, n n no background. There's no world building here. It's, it's all character drama. It's, it's all story. That said, there's also a great website that I go to frequently trying to get up to speed on all this stuff, and it's called simply thenorsegods.com, and I highly recommend it. It's a really good site with lots of information on it, pretty straight delivery, not a whole lot of fanfare. It's just the, the information that you're probably looking for about a lot of different gods and a lot of different aspects of, of this mythological interpretation of reality. Speaking of reality, let's talk a little bit about the way that the the mythological um, understanding of of the world set everything up. So you've probably heard of Yggdrasil, and yes, I'm going to mispronounce absolutely everything in this in this small series about Norse mythology. I apologize, but Yggdrasil is the world tree. It's a giant cosmological ash tree specifically and it serves as kind of the center point or the axis for reality the roots of yggdrasil are the planes of existence and there are three of them and within each plane there are what seem to be called worlds so there are nine worlds in the in the norse mythological uh, viewpoint there's uh, in the in the first plane of existence there's Asgard which is the world of the Asir there's a Vanaheim which is the land of the Vanir so the Asir and the Vanir are both gods they're both kinds of gods the Asir are kind of a warlike group who who tend to like cataclysm and conflict and destruction i i don't want to make it sound like they're evil because they're not it's just that they happen to that they're they're not afraid of a little bit of of shaking things up. The Vanir are a little bit more peaceful minded. They they if 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 you have a, a druid, then they might they might connect very strongly with the Vanir side of things. The Vanir are, are that they're the green deck in your Magic the Gathering uh, cards. That they're all about life and about health and growth. That's the kind of thing that the Vanir are fond of. Well, the Asir and the Vanir went to war at one point, probably for thousands of years. I don't know. It's it's probably God time. So, they went to war together against one another because they just couldn't get along until eventually they decided that war between the God factions just wasn't serving anyone well, and so they decided to get together, have a, a peace treaty, and and integrate. So, in the Neil Gaiman book. This took place in a great hall of some sort, with a big feast, and all the gods got together and spat. They, they spit saliva into a, a bowl or something to, as a sign of, of their agreement. 
And before they left, they thought, hey, we should, we should gather up this saliva and create a man out of it. Because that's what you can do with God's spit. So they did that. They, they created this guy called Kvasir. And Kvasir was this incredibly wise man. And, and they were, you know, he just, just, they just made him. They just molded him out of their spit. I, I assume maybe some dirt or something, because I don't really know how you make a man, a substance out of, out of saliva, but whatever. I mean, it's God's saliva, so you never know. Um, and so Kavasir is, he, he wows them with his wisdom, and then he, he goes down to Midgard, which you don't know what that is yet, um, and, and meets a bunch of humans and just sort of hangs around and impresses everyone with his wisdom. Now, I had originally thought when I was reading it that that was the creation of man, but I don't think it was because uh, Kvasir went down and to the, the mortal plane and met a bunch of other people, so they were already there. So I'm not clear on the significance of that event, uh, either in Neil Gaiman's retelling or just in general, because I couldn't find any any record of that. I mean, I didn't look that hard, but I, I found other tellings of it, I should say, and and. It, and it didn't quite happen that way. And uh, instead, they, the, the Kvasir was not uh, created at that event. He was part of the trade from one of the sides to the other. And that's the significant thing, really, is that there was a trade. When they came together, the Asir and the Vanir, to, to form one unified legion of, of gods, they, they initially just traded back and forth a couple of gods as good good tokens or, or whatever but by the time I, f I feel like by the time the stories start getting told there's not really a huge separation at least as far as i can tell between asir and vanir now does that mean that that they were in fact unified maybe not maybe if you existed if you were a person back way back when these stories were your religion maybe maybe you would know oh well that god is an asir so i'm gonna you know maybe treat them a little bit more carefully than this other one who I feel a little bit more is maybe more trustworthy because they're a veneer or something like that. You know, maybe that colored the way that you, you sort of dealt with one god or another. I'm not sure. I'm just saying that, that that might be an angle to it. Either way, I think the Asir and the veneer almost suggest a kind of an, an, a sort of a nod to alignment, but not certainly not the same kind of alignment as our nine grid in D&D, &D, because there are lawful Asir, and there are chaotic Asir, and there are lawful Vanir and chaotic Vanir, so I wouldn't say that there was that same interpretation. Much like in the Egyptian pantheon, where we have a god of the underworld, which through our sort of post-Christianity, post-modern religion viewpoint, we think, well, they must be evil then, but in fact they weren't evil, they just happened to be the ruler of the world of the dead, and that's just what they do. doesn't make them any more evil than someone who's ruling over life. It's just a different job description. So that's the Asir and the Vanir, and again, respectively, the Asir are on Asgard, and the Vanir are on Vanaheim. There's also another world in this uh, first plane of existence called Alfheim, and that's the land of the Light Elves. It's significant that there are light elves and not dark elves, because we will actually meet dark elves very, very soon. So the second plane of existence, I, I, which I would call the, the prime material plane, is Midgard, which is the land of the humans. That's us. We're in the middle world. 
Middle Earth, you might even call it. There's also Nidavellir, the land of the dwarves, and Jotunheim, the land of the giants, or Jotuns, and Svartalfheim, which is the land of the dark elves. So Svart and Alfheim. Svartalfheim is the land of the dark elves. Now, I wasn't super clear on the difference, to be honest, between elves and dwarves in the stories that I did read. I might be missing the key elements, I might be missing the ones that tell me very explicitly what the difference is, but I was reading a bunch of stuff that kind of mashed the terminology of elf and dwarf together, so I never really got a sense for what kind of elves we were talking about. Again, not a whole lot of research, because I tried to limit my research to the gods rather than to the, the mythical creatures of, of, this, of this setting, if you will. Okay, and then the final plane of existence is, uh, there are two worlds in it, possibly three, it depends on what you read. One is Hel, H-E-L, that's the realm of the dead. The other is Niflheim, which is the world of the dead. And then again, arguably there is Muspel, or Muspel, which is the plane or the, the world of fire, or the lake of fire, or some such thing of fire, this is ruled over by Surt, S-U-R-T, or, or maybe possibly guarded by Surt, and I'm not sure what the difference between ruling and guarded is. Maybe there's just nothing else there to rule, so he just guards it. But it, it, it is this, this place of great fire, and Surt, in fact, has a flaming sword. And at the end of the whole world, at the end times, Surt is going to burn Yggdrasil, the world tree, with his fiery sword, and so the whole world, or the whole realm, the, the reality, will burn with the fire of Muspel. This event, this destruction of everything, is called Ragnarok. So Ragnarok essentially is the apocalypse. That's the, it's the same kind of feel as an apocalypse. And if you read um, stories about Ragnarok, at least to the extent that I have, you'll notice that there is a certain kind of feel to it. That kind of hyper-specific prophetic feel is, is kind of the thing that I associate it with. So in the Christian Bible, for in instance, in the one that exists now, uh, there's that, that last book, the Revelation of St. John. And in previous editions of the Bible, like you know, back in 300 uh, AD, when the, the council... Of, of, of this or a council of that, put together the Bible, assembled it from all the different writings that they had collected over, over the centuries, they initially had more of these apocalyptic tales in, included in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the book. Uh, and so you had different apocalyptic visions by different people. I think St. Peter had one, and there was a shepherd somewhere who had one, I think. So it, it was kind of, kind of interesting to look to look at these older copies and see see some of these stories of, of you know these prophetic things of how everything was going to come to a horrible ending and it's funny because if you read them they 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 very frequently at least from what i can tell and of course i'm reading translations and so on but from what i can tell it seems like a lot of these things these stories are hyper specific they they all have these very specific events that are going to happen in in exactly one way Loki is going to ride this very specific boat to a very specific place 
and he's going to have as his cargo the, the all of these souls of the dead or, or something like that. And this other guy is going to um, he's going to die in this very specific way. You know, it's it's all it's always very there. There's the, this exactitude to it, and I think that's because without the exactness, the prophecy just doesn't feel as prophetic. And I think there's a lesson there for a dungeon master, especially since there are spells out there in in the player's handbook that enable players of a high level to see into the future. Or there are times in a game where you realize it would be really, really useful to be able to predict a future of this campaign, some future event. And it's difficult to do that, obviously, because if you say that something is going to happen then getting the players to actually to, to, to be in a situation where that thing can happen is it, it's, it's very, very difficult because the players may, might not go in that direction. They might go in this other direction. But if you can really think about it in terms of, yeah, these kind of apocalyptic prophecies that can be interpreted in many different ways and yet also simultaneously feel very, very specific... I think that sometimes can really drive a point home for the players. I think there's a skill to coming up with that kind of language, but it's probably worth taking a stab at a couple of times, just almost as a challenge to you as a dungeon master, because it it really is effective when you see it happen. It's just coming up with a a thing that can be interpreted in so many different ways. I think that's that's the tough part. Of course, a lot of these, these myths didn't ever have to actually see that they were going to come to fruition they just they could just deliver the specificity and and say i promise that this is how things are going to end luckily we'll be all dead at that time so it won't matter it was very convenient that that's less 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 important to the dungeon master i think the dungeon master has that that obligation to actually see their prophecies come to fruition so that's the that's the structure of the cosmology it's a lot different than the default D&D cosmology, of course, which which itself is not at all like our own uh, universe, right? I mean, it is very specific and very different than than how we understand things in physics. Uh, but it, it's still the the Norse cosmology is still just different enough that I think if you're going to going to apply the gods of of the Norse myths onto your D&D world, if you want to to incorporate this this other cosmology along with those gods it would it will take some it would take a little bit of an adaptation because there's not necessarily any allowance here for the cla- the, the sort of the classic planes of existence from D&D as outlined in planescape and so on so you'd have to kind of you'd have to you'd have to adapt it definitely uh, but for what it's worth the the separation of the planes and the separation of these nine worlds are pretty puzzling in the Norse myths. They they aren't that separate, as far as I can tell. Now there is this this bridge, uh, commonly called the Rainbow Bridge or uh, Bifrost, which is this bridge between Midgard, the realm of man, and Asgard, the realm of the gods. And it seems like it must be a pretty open bridge because people traverse the thing all the time. They end up, you know, humans will visit the gods, the gods will visit the giants, the giants will visit the humans. It's it's all over the place. So I'm, I was never super clear on why anyone even bothered. Why are there even different worlds if if these stories are always going to be about the crossing over 
into each other's worlds all the time. And I think, certainly if we look at a typical D&D campaign, I feel like that would be... Like, if anyone looked back at our D&D campaigns and thought, why were these myths told this way? And in fact, we do that all already, right now. You know, when you look at a D&D setting or a D&D campaign, you think, oh my gosh, this, 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 uh, this mythological creature is is wreaking havoc upon the world, or upon this city. So everyone in the whole D&D world must just know that dragons exist and, and live in fear of dragons, or they must know that beholders exist and live in fear of beholders, and so on. But the, the assumption that we are constantly having to remind ourselves of in order to keep the feeling of the fantastic alive is that these are actually exceptions. These are the times that the heroes are called forward are, are called forth because generally speaking this does not happen. And so every single campaign in a D&D world that you play in practically is the sort of the once in a lifetime can't believe it's happening event, but because those are the only campaigns that we play in it kind of makes it feel like, well, everything... The, the D&D world is just... There's there's all kinds of crazy things happening all the time. But you have to assume, just for sanity's sake, that that can't possibly be the case. Because otherwise, how would humans even be alive on this in this world ever at all? If zombies were constantly going through villages, and goblins were constantly attacking, and dragons were burning all of that, that to, to molten nothingness... There, there would be nothing left. So we have to assume that this is like a super, super rare event. So I'm assuming that the Norse myths, where the humans go up to talk to the gods, and the gods go over to the giants to show them tests of strengths and great feats, I, I'm assuming those are considered once-in-a-lifetime kinds of events. But because they're all collected into one central place, it makes it seem like all of that stuff was kind of just every day. But if you if you go into the world of these myths and ask a person, hey, have you ever met Odin before? Then you have to assume that no, they hadn't. Had they ever seen a giant? No, they haven't. So there you go. That's the cosmology and structure of the the Norse mythological world. And let's start at the top of page, not at the top of the, two, of the page, but at the top of the table on page 299 of the player's handbook. And that starts with Odin, god of knowledge and war. Alignment, neutral, good. So he has uh, knowledge in war as his suggested domains, and his symbol is a watchful blue eye. Odin, or Woden, or Wotan, is the god of magic and wisdom and logic, canonically. Later on, he apparently got associated with war and bloodshed and that kind of thing, but we are supposing that that's largely the Viking influence. And that originally Odin was just the the wise old god that you would probably kind of imagine ought to be at the top of a of a god pantheon. Ideally, your your top god would be lawful, um, not lawful, n- neutral good. And, and be all about knowledge and wisdom. And again, canonically, that is what Odin was kind of about. Odin is generally, so he is the, the All-Father, is what he's also called, and he's pictured generally as uh, a god wearing a winged helm, helm, or a floppy hat, and a blue-gray cloak. So almost, in a way, you might think of him as, as kind of a Gandalf figure. 
he can travel to any of the realms within all the nine worlds, and he has two ravens, Hugin and Munin, which um, translate to thought and memory. These ravens fly over the world daily and return to tell him everything that has happened in Midgard. So he's always aware of, well, everything that happens in the land of, of men. Odin is, has only one eye, and that's because he sacrifices one eye uh, at the well of Mimir to gain inner wisdom. And then he later goes so far as to hang himself on the world tree, on Yggdrasil, to gain the knowledge and power of runes. So pretty much all of his actions, all of his famous actions, are related not to war, but to knowledge and wisdom, uh, magic, learning, that sort of thing. And he's at the peak of all the gods. He is the All-Father. He's got a couple of sons and daughters that are mentioned specifically. His wife is called Frigga. And um, he's, he's considered to be a, a good, knowledgeable, wise old god. In the final battles of, of Ragnarok, Odin will be killed by the, the wolf Fenrir. And I guess that's worth noting that according to at least one of the stories um, in both just online, but also one of the stories that I, I read in the Neil Gaiman book, there's a goddess named Idun. I-D-U-N-N, and she has these fruit, this, this fruit that she carries around in a, in a box, and I guess in modern interpretations that's typically an apple, but it could be a, any manner of fruit, probably, and the fruit is a rejuvenating fruit, and it is actually what keeps the gods alive forever. So gods, according to the implications of the story at least, are not natively immortal. They can be killed, it's just, or they, they could die, for instance, of old age, but they don't, because Idun has these, these apples, or whatever, that she gives them whenever they start looking old. That's, that's the story. And, and that's almost, apparently that's the only story that Idun is really featured in, so she's not going to get mentioned in, on her own in this pantheon, but that's just something that I thought was worth mentioning, is that the, the gods have these fruits of immortality, which is kind of cool. Alright, next up is, Agir, the god of sea and storms, he is going to be mapped to the neutral evil alignment. Suggested domains is the is uh, tempest, and his symbol is rough ocean waves. Now, most of what I could find on Agir, or I think it's actually Agir, but most of what I could find on Agir was suggesting that it's almost unfair, at least the way that I was reading it, to just sort of refer to Agir. Because Agir, he, so he's the god of, of the oceans, and, he, and mythologically his face appears sort of upon the surface of the waters, or maybe just underneath the surface, and, and he may be smiling at you, or he may be enraged, and a storm might be coming. Sort of, I think it depends on the, the situation as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But while he is considered the god of the, of the oceans, of the waters... It's really more of a family affair. So his wife is is nearly as famous as him, I think. is Her name is Ran. And Ran is often... Is, is actually often considered a little bit more evil than Agir. So Agir being uh, typecast here as neutral evil is maybe unfair to Agir. Because really, if you, if you look at 
at the association of a Norse god with, for instance, drowning in water, that would be Ran. So it's almost as if the Agir gives and Ran taketh away, for lack of a better um, idiom. Now, they also have nine daughters, and his, their nine daughters are considered the spirits of waves. They, they dress in white, and they, I guess, they roam the oceans causing uh, waves, as, as you do uh, with all the, the white, what's that called, the crest of the wave or whatever. So, I mean, someone living on New Zealand should probably know more about terminology for oceans. Eventually, I'm sure I will. And, and so, so the, the sort of the churning and the, the daily life of the ocean isn't just Agir. It is Agir and Ran and their nine daughters. It's very much a, a family business. So you can you can say that Agir is the god of of the oceans and of the tempest, but really I feel like you would probably want to incorporate Agir and Ran and their nine daughters because it's so flavorful and so rich. Agir and Ran are also quite popular with all the other gods. They're they're you know they're, like any good pantheon. There's a lot of a lot of conflict in in the Norse mythology. People are, you know, one god is offending another and, and so on. But Agir and, and Ran are, they remain, well, just as the table says, pretty neutral. And they are known for throwing really, really nice feasts for the gods. And, um, and they, they seem to be pretty, pretty well liked among the rest of the gods. Okay, next up is Baldur. Baldur is the god of beauty and poetry. He is being uh, put into the alignment slot of neutral good. The suggested domains is life and light, and his symbol is a gem-encrusted silver chalice. That kind of says it all. Baldur is, in fact, the god of beauty. That is his... that's what he's known for. He's known for being beautiful, for just being amazing to look at. He is, as far as I can tell, the second son of Frigga. Now, that may collide with other interpretations of all this, wherein uh, Thor and Loki are sons of Odin, but Loki, of course, is not really a son of Odin. He's a half-brother or something like that. So Baldur apparently is is correctly and officially the second son of, of Odin. And his story is a pretty pretty interesting one, and apparently this story, the 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 big famous story about Baldur is basically from one source, which is this um, scholar of of Nordic uh, stories, Nordic um, mythology, named Snorri Sturluson. And Snorri Sturluson tells this story of... I mean, I'm not... It, it's from one source, but apparently everyone pretty much agrees that it's correct. So Snorri's tale goes a little something like this. So Balder starts having dreams about... Oh, and I should probably mention, Balder has no known relation to Balder's gate. So there's that. Um, but Balder, it is spelled the same in some... You know, it's a transliteration of a bunch of old, old Nordic writing. So you can spell it pretty much however you want. I've seen it spelled both, Balder and Balder. So uh, Balder has st starts having dreams about death, and so his mother Frigga, the 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 wife of Odin, goes around to everything in the world and casts magic on it, such that it can do no harm to her son. Everything, everything in the known world, she goes to that thing and and casts a spell on it, 
such that it cannot harm her 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 son, specifically Balder. She doesn't do it for any of her other sons, but for for Balder, she does that. So, um, whenever that's finished, when that when that job is done, the gods decide to test it out. See 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 what fun it is to to try to kill Balder, but have it not kill him. So they throw all kinds of objects at him. They throw swords and axes and chairs and tables and, and goblets. Just whatever they can find, they throw at Balder. Not coincidentally, Loki, the trickster god, I think he disguises himself, if I recall correctly, as someone else, and goes to Frigga and asks whether there's nothing in the world that um, that that she might have missed when when going around through the entire world, casting magic on things so that they can't kill her beloved son, Balder. And Frigga says, no, she didn't miss anything at all. She got everything. And Loki says, are you sure? There's not, not anything that you might have overlooked. And Frigga, completely unaware, apparently, that this kind of questioning might be motivated by, by anything other than actual curiosity, uh, says, well, actually, there was one thing, um, specifically mistletoe, which it's just a, it's a vine, and it's pretty small and pretty harmless, so I didn't really feel like mistletoe was that much of a threat, so I didn't bother casting magic on mistletoe. So Loki goes and makes a, uh, a spear or a dart or an arrow or something from mistletoe, and convinces the blind god Hodor to throw that object at Baldur. And everyone's throwing stuff at Baldur right now, so it wasn't unusual for, for Hodor to do it. And so Hodor throws the, the spear, the dart, whatever, at Baldur. It is made of mistletoe. It is the one thing that can kill him, and it does. Everyone is very surprised and disappointed, and... Um, and, I mean, everyone loves Balder. Like, everyone in the in the known universe just loves Balder, because he's beautiful and lovely, and he is the god of love, and, you know, no one, no one doesn't like Balder. So they have a, a big funeral for him, and all of the magical creatures gather around for the funeral. They do the whole Viking funeral thing, I'm sure, where they put the body in the boat, and they set it on fire. And so the Valkyries and the elves and the dwarves, everyone's there. But it's a pretty sad occasion, so the gods say, well, we really want Baldur to, to come back to life. So maybe one of us could go down to the underworld, down to hell, and ask for Baldur, for, for, for hell to return Baldur. Now, hell has never returned a body before, a soul. Never has given back. You know, once someone goes down to the realm of hell, they, they do not return. That is, that's the underworld, it is hell's domain, she gets to keep whoever comes into it. So, uh, Hermod, one of Odin's other sons, decides to go down to hell on Odin's horse, Slipnir, and ask about getting Baldur back. He does this. Hell says, well, I've never done that before. I don't see why I should do it for, for uh, Baldur. But they, they, they ask nicely, and so finally Hell says, okay, well, if you go through the whole world and ask everyone on it whether or not they loved Baldur, and everyone says that they loved Baldur, then I will give Baldur back. 
But if one person, just one person is all it takes. One person says they didn't love Balder, then then I get to keep him. So uh, Hermod goes around the entire world asking about, you know, if, if anyone didn't love Balder. Everyone says, no, we love Balder. Balder's great. But right towards the end, he comes across a giantess named Tok. And she says, or he, he asks the giantess if, if, if she loved Balder. And the giantess says, actually, I didn't love Balder. I really don't like Balder at all. And Hell should keep Balder. And that seals the deal, breaks the spell. Nobody can, but Balder can't be returned from Hell. And so Balder is doomed to Hell, to the realm of the dead, where he can bring joy to no one. Turns out, of course, Talk was actually Loki in disguise. Not really sure why Loki wanted to get rid of Balder so much. It doesn't really go into motivation so much, especially when Loki is concerned. But that's the story of Balder. People kind of assume that that story is a story because... Well, I mean, there's the obvious sort of... I don't know, almost... I, I guess technically it's it's, it's pre-medieval, so, but, you know, it's that ancient kind of... I mean, you can imagine living in in the harsh world as it appeared long, long ago, thousands of years ago, and how a story about a god of love and light being doomed to the realm of the dead might actually re resonate with you. That might not sound so unusual. Why is life so miserable? Well, there was this one god who made everything perfect, but then he died and got doomed to the realm of the dead, so he can't make anybody happy anymore. I feel like that may have resonated with me as a person if I'd, if I'd lived way back then, when, you know, we did, they, they didn't have things like medicine and computers and, I don't know, food, or D&D. So that's, that's Balder, and he is, again, neutral good. So, the next one on the list here is Forseti, who is the god of justice and law. He is a neutral god of light. His suggested domain is light. And his symbol is a is the head of a bearded man. Not much is known about Forseti. He's mentioned only in one or two stories, apparently. He wasn't mentioned at all in the Neil Gaiman one. He is arguably the son of Balder and his wife Nana, but that's apparently considered somewhat apocryphal because it's it's, again, just one source claims this, and it's a fairly, uh, I guess, relatively modern source, which is Snorri Sturluson. No, uh, no one feels sure enough to call, to call Forseti definitely the son of, of anyone. And, and in fact, we, we really only have one bit of information about him at all, which is that he has a hall called Glitnir in Asgard, and in that hall... It is made of gold and silver, and in that hall, he settles disputes. And that's all anyone is comfortable saying definitively about him, that he is a god who settles disputes in a gold and silver hall called Glitnir. Next on the list is Frey, god of fertility and the sun. He is neutral good, god of light and life, and his symbol for the D&D uh, pantheon is ice blue greatsword. An ice blue greatsword. So this is Frey. Now, Frey, if you'll recall, I think I mentioned this, uh, is actually a Vanir. He is he was traded to the Asir when the the Asir and the Vanir came together as as one. He is the brother of Freya, who we will hear about next. 
But first, we, we should talk about Frey. Or Freyr, as, as I guess the, the non-English, the, the non-lazy way to say it. it. Apparently it's sometimes spelt with an R at the end. And Freyr, or Frey, is a hugely important god. Cannot be overstated what kind of, what kind of influence Frey had over Norse mythology and the people who, who worshipped this pantheon in real life. He was really, really important. He was, I, I think of him sort of as an Apollo analog, although I don't think that's fair at all, but kind of in a way, that's kind of what he is. Again, he's a veneer, so he's, he's kind of, he's on that safe side of things, at least if, if my interpretation of Asir versus Vanir is correct, which it may well not be. Um, but he's, he is, in poems, he is called the, the foremost of the gods. He's called hated by none. He, he was a very popular god of fertility, of bountiful harvests, of wealth, and of peace. So he was kind of lord over all of the good things in life, right? Their sex, food, and not dying a bloody death in a horrific battle. It's pretty significant. He took a chariot around, which maybe is why I'm equating him in a way to Apollo, but he, he rode a chariot around on land that was uh, uh, pulled by giant boars. The boar Gulenborsti, golden bristled boar, uh, was his was his main was his main boar, but he I guess probably had a couple of boars that, that took him around. On the sea, he took a ship. He had a, um, a very famous sailing ship that he would take around on, on the ocean. But the name is such that I could never even begin to pronounce it, so you'll just have to take my word for it. He had a ship. It was well known. There were lots of model ships built for his ship. It was kind of the, from what, I, from what I'm gathering, it was the the model ship. That's what your ship should look like. And if you emulate that, the ship of this particular god, then you'll, you'll be doing well. Other things that people would emulate were the chariot that he rode. The priests and priestesses of Freyr in Iceland would travel the land with on a, in a chariot, and they would carry with them a statue of, of Frey. We have historical evidence of that, apparently. So, Frey was a big, big deal. People were worshipping Frey right up until the very sort of end of, of, I guess, I guess the end of paganism in a way. I mean, it, it was, you know, right before that big changeover, people were worshipping Frey. He was very, very popular, very well revered. During Ragnarok, Freyr and the giant guy with the flaming sword, Surt, uh, are going to destroy each other. So he's he's important right up to the very end, and and in a way he's he's he is part of the end because he's going to destroy the thing that that ended everything else. Okay, I think we have time for one more, and I think I think we'll do Freya next because she's next in the list. But it just seems appropriate to to group her and her brother Frey together. So Freya is the goddess of fertility and love. She is also neutral good, just like her brother. She, her domain is life, and her symbol is the falcon. She's an interesting one. I, I quite like the idea of Freya. She is, well, she's a veneer, like her brother, obviously. But she is, and, and as you can tell from the description, her domain is basically the same as her brother's. It's, it's, uh, it's 
life bringing and sexuality and abundance and so on. But she is specifically, um, she's a little bit wild. She has been accused by Loki, and, and I don't think anyone really argues against it because she's got, she's she sort of built up a reputation for herself. But he, she's been accused by Loki of sleeping with all of the gods and all of the elves and even her own brother. So she is obviously a pleasure seeker, a thrill seeker. She is pretty wild. And she is very significantly, I think, even more than than her, I guess you would just call it her joie de vivre, right? Her, her love of life. More than that, possibly, she is known for being the, uh, perhaps the originator and, and I guess the bringer of Seder. And Seder is Norse magic. It is specifically, from what I understand, the branch of magic about foretelling uh, and, and divining fate. So she brings this to the gods. The gods didn't have that magic before Freya joined the Asir after the Asir and Vanir War. And, and likewise, she brought it to the humans, which meant that her, her clerics, for lack of a better term, would, would practice this Seder magic to try to, uh, to predict the future, just as, as anyone might read tea leaves today or, or do tarot cards or whatever you might see out and about. Seder was, was that branch of, of, of mysticism. Freya, later in Nordic poetry and stories, and I guess as it even started to mix with, with, with German, the Germanic tribes, they, Freya became sort of, sort of confused possibly, or, or, or combined with Frigga, who is, of course, the wife of Odin. And certainly the, the marriage, both literal and figurative, does kind of work, because Freya being a goddess essentially of magic, I mean, also of life and, and being alive, but, but also of, of this, of this very significant, significant magic that she brought to, to the gods and to humans, kind of matches up pretty well with Odin, the god of knowledge and arguably also magic. So it kind of makes sense, but um, apparently there's just a lot of confusion, and it's not like I've read these stories myself or these epic poems or anything like that. But from what I'm from what I'm finding online, uh, there there's a little bit of confusion about why Freya and Frigga eventually sort of became the same, and then if they are the same, then why why did they maintain their independence even thereafter? A little bit confusing. People don't seem to quite understand how how it works, but that is apparently a thing that sort of started to become confused in, in later sources. Now, Odin, of course, you, you may or may not know, I shouldn't say of course, but Odin happens to be the source of the day Wednesday. Uh, Woden is Woden's day, or Woden's dog, and that's Wednesday. It turns out that Freya or I guess Frigga, or or the combination of the two, Frigga, uh, or Freya, um, is the source of the day Friday. So now you know, Friday is actually Freya's day. And of course, as I said, her symbol, even in the D&D version of this pantheon, is the falcon. And the reason for that is because apparently, in in one tale from from someone, some old 
book or, or epic poem, whatever, says that Freya has the ability to transform into a falcon. So that's why her symbol is a falcon. That's it for today, I think. I think that's probably just all we have time for. We're only about maybe a fourth of the way through the table, but I did spend some time up front talking about the, the world, the cosmology and stuff, so probably in the next episode we'll go a little bit quicker. I hope this has been helpful and informative for you. It's certainly been a blast reading about the Norse mythology, finally. I've really been meaning to delve into this a, a lot sooner in life, and so being able to kind of dig around in it and, and start to explore this world has been a lot of fun. And as I said, I, I don't necessarily recommend Neil Gaiman's book, Norse Mythology, if you want to learn about Norse mythology. But if you want to hear stories in the Norse mythology, you know, of, of Norse mythology uh, characters and, and stories that, that have been written places, then this is a great book to read. I guess the other source that you really ought to look at if you're really, really interested in this sort of thing is Snorri Sturluson and his his thoughts on Norse mythology. Although, from what I'm reading online, even he has kind of a, a bias to his report. And not, not a bias to any certain thing, except that he just likes to be able to explain things. And so sometimes he apparently draws conclusions that don't necessarily match up with the source material from which he is drawing his conclusions. Anyway, it's a big topic. It's a fascinating one. Hopefully this has given you the, the very beginning of the understanding of how the Norse gods could possibly fit into a D&D campaign. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not klaatu. I'm on the Freenode network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.